Hey, live from AC Second listeners, this is Sam Mulberry with our summer podcast series. This series is based on my spring 2018 sabbatical project in which I interviewed 15 faculty who won the Bethel University Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching. As part of this project, I created long-form video interviews with these people to talk about the art and craft of teaching, to talk about how they became teachers, how they think about teaching, how they think about education and interacting with students. So I want to share these full interviews with you throughout the course of this summer. If you're interested in watching these interviews, you can go to cwcradio.wordpress.com and look under the teaching project. If you want to watch the feature-length documentary, Why We Teach, which is based on this interview series, you can also find that at cwcradio.wordpress.com. We'll be dropping interviews from this series onto the podcast feed throughout this summer. Our interview today is with Carol Young, the Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching winner from 2003. I'm Carol Young. I came to Bethel and started teaching in the psychology department in 1990. So this is now year number 28. I was going to be a clinician. I was going to figure out uh, how to how to figure how to help people, okay, with mental problems and so on. And I was going to do that through psychology. I was this was a good Christian path for me to pursue, I thought. So that was why I got into it, but I could probably have gone very happily into any number of scientific fields and found quite a fulfilling path. I didn't think I'd make a good teacher because I was too withdrawn and too shy, okay? Probably a little bit too compulsive, a little bit too perfectionist. I had to learn everything in a course. You know, not just enough to get by, but everything in a course. So I learned all, I read all the books. I did every assignment. I thought all the students did that, kind of, but I realized afterwards, of course, they didn't. I, and I never was that socially oriented, which I thought was a real requirement for being a good teacher. You know, you just had to be a really gregarious and social type of person, and I was not. But of course, all of those thoughts weren't really predicated on higher education and what it was like. They were, they were just from grade school and high school. When I got to grad school and realized, oh wow, I could teach the subject that I really love, which was really the whole reason I was in that field in the first place, and I could teach it to other adults who liked, liked it also or could come to, to love it also along with me. That had a lot of appeal. So that was why I kind of changed my mind and thought, oh, maybe I could do this, higher education. But you don't think about those things when you're younger. You know, it, it wasn't at, the, at that time. you got to remember this is back in the 1970s. It was not the, the path that... Mo, you know, that most of us young women were thinking about following. So I did my psychology degree and finished up and then started heading into graduate programs for clinical psychology and did some internship stuff. And fortunately, 
didn't get into any of those that first year after graduation, any of those clinical programs. Fortunately, because I found out that I really hated it pretty much, the clinical aspects of it. So then I had to go back to square one, sort of, and ask what was it I really liked about my field and why I had chosen it. And figured out that, no, I was, I was a, really a behavioral cognitive psychologist. I wasn't clinician material. And I just kind of figured that out, partly from watching and working under really good professors at my school. One primary one was an undergraduate instructor in my area in experimental psychology at Spring Arbor College. And he was very influential on me. This was, this was John Allen, just because of how he approached his field and how he approached the teaching of it. Um, he also was not a particularly gregarious kind of instructor. I mean, he clearly really loved his, his field and his discipline. He, but he taught it from such a deeply embedded Christian point of view. And he shared that with us in moderate, moderate chunks, right? Um, never really preached it at us, but shared it with us in, in, good, in a good way. So after I had graduated from Spring Arbor, um, and John Allen moved to teaching at another school, we still stayed in touch, and then during graduate school, uh, we stayed in touch, and it, uh, it was a friendship that lasted then for a number of years after, after that, after graduation. So he, he was very influential in a lot of ways, because once I'd realized I wasn't going to be a clinician, then I thought, no, it's really this area that John Allen taught me that is the area I really love, right? I'm, I'm the scientific type of psychologist, and this is what I've got to do. So that's why I went back to that area. And so then, then I, when I applied the, the following year to go into grad programs, I applied for that type of graduate program. I was also very interested in the biology parts of it. I think I probably could have been a very happy biologist as well as a psychologist. So I applied to experimental and physiological programs and got accepted into several and had my choice of where to go. So then off I went. But I don't think I was still thinking I would be a, an instructor. I, I never thought I would make a good teacher ever growing up or anything. So I just kind of headed into the graduate program because that was what I wanted to study. Then in grad school, I, um, I of course, had to work as a graduate assistant, teaching assistant, and liked it, and found out I was relatively good at it, and, and figured out that this would be a nice way to just kind of stay in school forever. It seems weird to say that, but yeah, that was kind of, as looking back on it, what I wanted to do. 
and I was not probably going to be ever a heavy-duty researcher, although I really enjoyed the research that I was doing. And I could probably have gone that direction, but I realized I didn't probably wouldn't flourish that way in that area. So that was when instruction became a good path to follow. As soon as I'd finished up my um, degree at um, at Arizona State University, my PhD, um, I was still doing just adjunct teaching at that time, but I was teaching for ASU, I was teaching for a number of community colleges around the Phoenix area, and th then the position at Grand Canyon University opened up um, starting that next fall. So I interviewed and went right into it. So I taught at Grand Canyon for four years and then saw the position advertised in the psychology department at Bethel and thought, oh, I could come back closer to my family because while Victor and I were doing our d degrees at Arizona State, my whole family uh, was moving a piece at a time from wherever they were to Minnesota. So my, my parents were here, my sister and brother-in-law, and my brother, and Victor, my husband's family, was still in the Detroit area, so it was like, oh, I could get a little bit closer to home, closer to family. And, you know, those things become important as you grow a little bit older, and you watch your, especially your parents getting a little bit older. It's kind of like, boy, I wish I were closer so I could help a little more. Bethel was also a school a lot like Grand Canyon, which made it very appealing to me because I really was having a wonderful time teaching my students at Grand Canyon. I did a lot of uh, faculty development then, especially when I came to Bethel because Grand Canyon didn't have that much to offer at the time. Bethel had quite a bit more faculty development opportunities uh, when I came in 1990 even. And of course, in my department was Kathy Nevins. So I, I have to say, Kathy was one of, my, was one of my early mentors. I had a lot to learn about how to relate to students here in Minnesota who were quite different than the students in Arizona. So I learned a lot of that from Kathy, just in conversations about um, what are they like? How do I get them more engaged in class? Um, what kind of assignments? Are, are effective. And Kathy was always very willing to share those sorts of things with me, eager and willing. And as, as were others who I consulted with too. It wasn't all departmental either. What I found at Bethel was also quite different from Grand Canyon in the way of the, that you could get a lot of help from people outside your department, right? So after a few years, when I was working on my um, integration of faith and learning statement for my tenure, right, Mike Holmes was the one who helped me through that. He was on the P&T committee at the time, and they helped me write that paper and gave me feedback. And then faculty development opportunities that came along were uh, one of the early ones that I remember was a Bush grant that Lita Frazier directed 
I don't remember what year it was, but it, it was a great experience just in terms of getting with that group of fellow faculty members who all wanted to kind of talk about these same sorts of things um, in, the, in their classroom and in their courses. How do we do this better? So I got a lot out of that. Still have the notes from that early on seminar that we all did together, workshops, seminars that we did together. Um, there were probably a number of others. And over the years, I, I saved all those notes because sometimes you just had to go back to them to get another idea. One thing I made it a point to always do was to try something, one, one new thing each year. Just one new thing because as you looked at your course evaluations from the students and thought about you know, how things could have been better, it was easy to get overwhelmed if you thought, oh, you know, especially if the evaluations were weak, which I had plenty of, right? Poor ones. And so looking at them, I thought I, you could get really overwhelmed, like feeling you'd done everything wrong, practically, right? Nothing you tried in that class did it had any impact okay that was how you could feel if you weren't careful and so you could try these major overhauls but then you wouldn't find out what in these changes you made was really an effective thing if it came out better the next time right so i started just doing one sort of change each year try one new thing if it was going to be something eventually it was things that i might try to do online or it might be a reworked assignment that I would try. Um, sometimes it wasn't even that big of a thing. Maybe it was um, just sort of a revision of the instructions for each of my labs that I was going to try in a certain course, you know. Um, but if it was one thing each year, then at the end of, or one thing each, yeah, each year, I because I kind of, you have to also give these things a little bit of time for yourself to get used to using them as, as a technique, because your first time through is always going to be rough. So you got to give yourself a little bit of time to get used to using them. So I'd try them for, for a year. But then I could ask the students who were in those courses specifically what they got out of that assignment. And then I could find out if they thought it was really effective or not. And that told me then whether those changes were, were helping or not. You know, you, you gotta track things, you gotta be patient with yourself and with the new things that you try. That was one of the main things I learned in those, in those first years. And I learned most of that at Bethel because there was not the emphasis on growing as a professor at Grand Canyon when I started out there that Bethel had when I, that I encountered when I got here. When I started out teaching, I'm, I'm sure one of the things I did not have a very clear perception of was what most students would really be like. Um, because there again, I, I probably expected them, I, I think I remember expecting them to kind of be like me, right? And, and most of them weren't. But that was a long time ago, and, that, and 
those students back in the 1980s when I started out were still just generally, I think, a little bit more invested in the learning, the learning of it, um, than in just getting a degree. N not as many students went to college, and definitely not as many into graduate programs back then. I mean, that's really been the blossoming that's happened in the last several decades. So, it, it, more of the students were like me than I think is now the case, and that was one of the adjustments that I had to make as I went along. But I think I was still surprised as a young teacher that, um, that the students weren't just sitting there on the edges of their seats ready to absorb everything that I put in front of them. It's also kind of important to remember that that many years ago we also had much greater limitations on how much technology and other things we could use in our instruction. Uh, we, it was a big deal if I wanted to use an overhead in class because I had to check it out ahead of time and have it taken to my classroom if I was going to use it. An overhead. So you did a lot of thing, a lot more things from paper. And, um, and there again at the, at the schools when I started out because I wanted to teach labs, um, I had to, and in fact when I came here to Bethel, so this was four years into my teaching career that I came to Bethel, um, I had to have the equipment for the learning lab uh, built by a local manufacturer here, right here in Arden, or Shoreview, I think. They're, they're across Lexington there by 694. So I had to go to them and just say, could you build me this equipment, right, for, for my lab over here at Bethel. And the guy at that company was very nice and knew about Bethel and was very happy to help me. But I had to literally build it all from scratch. So as a, as a new instructor, I think the challenges were different in terms of how you get your students engaged in class. And starting out, you had to just do a lot more of it verbally than, than I found I had to do later. I think I did end up teaching, developing my own style of teaching very much like John Allen's. Um, but back in that, at that time, back in the 70s, you know, most college teaching was still lecture primarily in class. And, but because John was the instructor for the lab courses and the experimental courses, I had labs. Now, we, not all the psych majors had to take lab courses, but I took them and I really liked them. So we got to actually train our rats, you know, in our Skinner boxes and, and do physiological recordings of each other in the labs. And I think that was, in looking back on it, somewhat um, progressive for the time. 
but it was a way of learning that I just really liked. I, I mean, it, it really was, in, in retrospect, it was the way that I learned to just love doing, doing science, not just hearing about it, but doing it. So that was the, the method then that I adopted. And when I started teaching as a graduate assistant, I, I was the instructor for the lab courses. Um, rat lab, uh, statistics lab, um, physiological psychology lab. Um, I, you know, those were what we did. And then the professors that we taught with were the ones who did the lectures, right? So I think that having developed through that route, that was kind of the way then that I wanted to teach. I wanted students to learn by discovery and watch things happen for themselves, figure, figure out how it's happening by watching it, by recording it. And so my classes ended up being a lot like that and my teaching style ended up being a lot like that because I started out in non-Christian institutions, I should probably back up that far because that was certainly the, the beginning stage for me that didn't help me to grow in the ways I needed to later in integrating my faith into my discipline and into my teaching. Those things didn't happen for me at first. So there was certainly a stage at the beginning where I was just strictly a teacher of psychology statistics mostly, but also cognitive psychology and, and um, experimental psychology. So there, there was that stage, and then I got to Grand Canyon uh, College at the time. Now it's Grand Canyon University. And that was its own kind of stage uh, because, as I mentioned, before there was not much emphasis on faculty development there, uh, so I was pretty much kind of on my own at that at that school to try to uh, just figure out what was going to be an effective way to teach that group of students with their characteristics and um, qualities, and to teach in good collaboration with those colleagues. Um, and I was pretty much figuring it out on my own. And then Bethel, I would say, was definitely another, another couple of new stages. The first, I'd say at least two years, but maybe it was three years, felt so different to me at Bethel than Grand Canyon was that I really did wonder if I'd made a horrible mistake in coming here for those first few years. But it was quite a culture shift as well as a shift in what was expected of my teaching. So it was both of those things. The, and that stage probably lasted about three, it probably was about three years that it took to move through that. And then, then I finally did get to the stage where I felt like, okay, I, I sort of know what I need to be doing to continue to grow as an instructor, right? And so that's when I started learning how to read the student course evaluations, um, how to get useful things out of them, how to apply those, those things the following year as I revised my courses and, and reworked them and thought about what I wanted to try to do that following year that would be different. 
and hopefully more effective. So that was that was been kind of my final stage then. And I would say that I, I sort of stayed in that one probably then, but it, it was it didn't feel like a stage because it turned into a just sort of my gradual growth plan, I guess, um, until until the end after. 26 years of that at Bethel, um, then yeah, then I was ready to try something new and that's when I tried the administrative job. That was a very difficult decision to make, to decide to go to an administrative job. I wasn't sure just who I would be as a person if I wasn't a faculty member, right? After that long, you just to get to thinking of yourself in that way and that's what your whole life has been. So yes, that, it was very hard, but, but there were also things about it that were very appealing because you do get to uh, feeling somewhat stagnant, even, even if you're working on your courses every year, right? And, and you're thinking, how do I freshen this up? And what are my next group of students going to look like, right? What will they be like? And so, yeah, that that still can feel like after that long that you're just doing the same, same thing. And yeah, you, you need to try something new after a while. And I think I did. And that's why I made that choice. Teaching at a Christian school just really helped me feel like I was teaching out of out of my whole life and not just out of my discipline. Um, because my whole life is is Christian, right? It I could I could teach and I did for several years at state universities and community colleges and so on where you were not allowed to bring up any faith issues or matters. You didn't talk about um, spiritual life and you didn't talk about God, pretty much. And I could do that. I, I did that just fine, I think, for those years because I had a, an excellent grounding in my field and, and I knew what was expected at those schools. But it was always just part of who I actually was, right? So the full person uh, I was just really found it very rewarding to go to a, a Christian school when I went when I started at Grand Canyon um, to be able to talk with my students about their their spiritual and emotional problems as well as their academic ones. I just enjoyed that, appreciated it very much, and it felt like to me, you know, that I, I could now just teach out of my life because all of this was part of my life. You know, my love for my academic discipline as well as my love for God um, and the church, just and my desire to serve could be all of those things. I never became one of those who always had lovely devotionals and prayers at the beginning of class. Um, so it wasn't that. It wasn't those overt things so much as it was 
what what I'd always observed in my in my professor John Allen all those years ago, um, what I really thought about the field that I had studied was it was God's creation. It was worthy of study just for that reason. Um, it, but it also afforded, and, and I really appreciated this about the field of psychology, many pathways for applications that could also be areas of service for the world and for other people, right? So even though those weren't part of what I did necessarily in, in psychology, they were certainly part of what I saw as my mission, more or less, right? So I, I was just going to be the Christian person who was also a really good psychologist in my area. And so as much as I could, I tried to convey that to students in the classroom, right? Here's how you can do these things. Here's how you can learn this material. Here's how you can apply it, no matter what area you try to go into. Here's how you can apply it as a Christian person. So I often had discussions about that um, sort of thing from the scientific perspective with my students. You know, here's, yes, here's what the, the science says, but what does this mean to the Christian person, right? What part does this play in your faith? I often had that kind of discussion um, very fruitful ones, and students were very interested in that sort of interaction, I think. Um, and then, so those were the kind of things that happened in the classroom, uh, but then the students who struggled with these sort of things, because my area was behavioral, cognitive, uh, physiological, a lot of the questions about, you know, what, what if the, you know, what if I have this or that sort of problem, right? Is it really my fault? Is it physical? Is it cognitive? Is it spiritual? Or is it all, right? So I used to love to have those conversations and then I could tell them, well, it's all because God is in it all, right? Uh, in Him we live and we move and we have our being. There you go. There are many ways to attack these problems that we're trying to fix in our life. That was how I taught. Students should study psychology f for the very reason that it's, it's a discipline in which there are just so many ways to serve, so many pathways to serve, right? Mm -hmm. So you can be a scientist in this field, as I have been for my whole life. And you can look at the um, oh. you can look at the work that you're doing as an offering to pretty much to all of humanity in the whole world, right? And you, you can go into an area of practice. Um, you can be a clinician. Uh, you can serve those around you who are troubled with these kinds of problems, and you can um, help them in in very well-founded, solid, um, psychological ways, as well as spiritual ways. I mean, I, I just think it's a field that 
for some people just really captures their their desires to want to be um, to want to be good good servants of God and servants of other people. I played the piano all through college and still do, and it was it. It was the expression of the other parts of your life, right? So I was very committed to learning, student, right? I was very academic. Um, but it, but music was the expression of things that I felt. Music and arts and humanities. Uh, to me are mainly those things and I of course wanted to study them as well as psychology because I was interested in people and what you know what makes them work the way that they work right so yes in especially with psychology you've got to have those other um, those other areas just so that you come to understand the richness of life in general, but also the richness of the individual person and how, what different parts of their life there, there are um, to be understood and how those parts are going to interact with each other. There's so, so much there that you really can't begin to, to interact well with other people if you don't have an awareness, at least, of all of those other other parts of a person. You can approach life totally from the, the emotional side or you can enhance the rational side of your person, right? And to be a really well-balanced person who's going to deal um, fruitfully, successfully with life in all of its aspects, that, that rational thinking part has got to grow too. And that's what the sciences are really so good at. You know, what are you going to do with the evidence that's around you? What are you even going to call evidence of, of why things happen, right? Um, I, I've just been convinced from the very beginning, I think, that, that real success in life comes not just from kind of bumbling your way through it, but from being able to some degree to analyze what's happening and why it's happening. Um, you, I think for individuals to gain any sense of real efficacy for themselves, um, they need to think about what happens to them in the world and from other people in terms of why. And, and they need to use the right kinds of evidence because it's one thing to just use internal um, subjective lines of evidence. You know, well, this is what I feel, so that must be what so-and-so is feeling. And that must be why they did, you know, why they did what they did. Um, but it's another thing to look at individuals, other people more objectively and uh, groups of people more objectively, and even the natural world more objectively, and think, are these things are happening because of this and that and the other reason. And there's going to be a lot of non-intuitive reasons 
that are going to come to light when you take that approach to trying to understand what's happening around you. Non-intuitive things that wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't just think of by thinking, sitting by yourself and pondering, right? And so it's those non-intuitive things that you have to get by the, by other means, by a more objective looking at the world. Evaluation of evidence. Understanding, struggling to understand how things are working and why they're happening the way that they are. I would imagine that teaching for some people is very much an art, but I don't think it is for me. Especially given the way that I sort of came to it by gradually, by self-discovery, by literally having some doors just clearly shut in my face, you know. Oh, I, I knew I wasn't going to make a good clinician. I tried, I gave it a fair shot. I was, I tried it for a year. You know, you got to give these things a fair shot. But I knew it wasn't going to be for me. And so given that I came at it from that way, never thinking I'd really make a good teacher because of my preconceptions of what it was, what teaching was all about, I think for me it, it was very much a science and a craft. I think I had to start out just discovering what I could do and whether I could do this or not well, whether I could do it well. And then, then once I sort of got the idea that I could do it well, then you, you grow your skills at it. And that's what I think I did, was just try to grow my skills at it by using, again, the evaluations, the feedback that I got, um, my own uh, perceptions of how things had gone in the courses that I taught, um, the success of my students, you know, that was part of what I looked at, too. Um, and then just tried to get better at it. So I think for me it was, it's ended up being mostly a craft that I based um, largely on just trying to gain skill at it. You use, collect the evidence as you go along, use it to try to get better. I really do just kind of see the, the you know, the students as um, as the potential place for, uh, for their, you know, as kind of the fertile soil, I suppose, a place for the seeds to be planted, and then it's going to grow into whatever um, they they make of it. Basically, um, it, it's not going to be me who's going to make something grow in them, but I can try to provide the right conditions to get them hooked on something that they really want to learn about, um, find a place that's going to feel like the right place of service for them, uh, and then just, yeah, try to encourage stuff to grow, you know, stuff that will be good for them and good for the world to grow in those fields. Cognitive psychology was my favorite. And, of course, after I handed that one off to others when I came to the administrative job, I, I can't say I'm still teaching it, but it was my favorite. It was my area of primary area of study in graduate school. It was what my thesis and my dissertation were done on. It's what my 
research has been on since that time and the papers that I've published have all been in that area. So probably it's my favorite for a couple of reasons. It would, of course, be the one that I would, I'd be the most invested in just making sure that I keep up with everything that's happening in the field. Um, but the one that I also would, would especially want to plant, if I'm going to stick with my metaphor here, plant the students in, right? So that, I mean, because it was always from the very beginning one of my goals to make sure that I sort of reproduced somebody like me um, from among my students, right? To replace me. I'm, I won't be here forever. Um, and I cared enough about my field that I really wanted to see it continue and grow. And so it seemed important to me from the very beginning that somewhere along the way, at least a few of the students that I, that I helped to encourage along turned out to be cognitive psychologists, right? That, that just seemed important, I guess. Um, there were only a few in retrospect, but that's all right. It was enough. But it still is probably what made cognitive psychology my favorite course to teach, one of the reasons. When students came into my classes, I guess I, I, I did hope for them. I hoped for them that they really did want to, to, to learn what the class was about, what the course material was about. I think I can only call that really a hope, though. I don't know that I had that as a really strong expectation, certainly not of all of them as a group. That was something that actually kind of changed over the years of teaching in the, um, teaching the students. I, I did feel like there was sort of a change because back when I started out, that I, I did feel like that was the main, that was my main expectation, that the students were taking my class. In fact, they were in college taking classes from anybody because they wanted to, okay? They wanted to learn it. Um, and I think that was a fairly accurate perception at the time. Again, we're talking the 1980s, right? So I think that was fairly accurate at the time, but over the years, over the decades, uh, things did change because I, I do think that a student's primary motivation for coming to college changed over those years um, from just really wanting to learn this area. And this, of course, is not, not for all of them individually. I'm talking very much about the, the whole group of them as I perceived it, okay? As I perceived it over all those years. The whole group of them, that the primary motivation became to, um, to get a degree and then to, that, which would lead them to a successful profession of some type. Now, when I was a student, I, I, I wanted to do that too. I mean, I certainly intended to end up in a profession, but I, 
it wasn't it wasn't the primary thing in my mind because I just loved college I guess I just loved being there and I loved learning it all and so that was definitely the reason why I was there but I think that's different for most of the students nowadays than it was when I started out I had to learn over the years to adjust to that change um, it's just it it mainly meant for me uh, finding better ways to draw the students in, to try to get them engaged, to try to show them the usefulness and the applicability of the material. So it, it was probably good for me in a lot of ways that the students changed that way. Um, it, taught me, it taught me better ways of teaching and it allowed me to, I think, to fairly successfully keep teaching for all those years. But, but you had to change because the students were changing. I think the personal relationships that I built with the students, mo most of the ones that became um, closer relationships, you know, students who I, whom I followed f f and who stayed in touch, you know, for the years after they graduated and left, those students. I think our relationships were primarily built on our common interest in the field, tell you the truth. Um, but there again, that's probably because of who I was. I'm, I wasn't the I wasn't the person growing up who was going to have tons and tons of friends just because I just loved having friends around all the time. That was not me. I had a few close friends, and they were my close friends because we shared a lot in common in our interests, things that we cared about. So I think it ended up kind of the same as an instructor. Um, the students with whom I had the close relationships were the ones with whom I, I discovered a lot of shared common interests, um, things that we cared about, um, not, not, just, not just the field of psychology and my areas of the field, but the world in general you know, how we approached understanding the world and what was happening in it. I hope they would say, as an, as an instructor, I, I was very clear about what I was trying to do in the classroom. I cared very much about my discipline. I cared very much about how they learned it. I hope they would say that I did care about their personal and spiritual growth as well, but I, I really wanted them to grow in every way. And honestly, I knew that my primary input into their lives was going to be the academic stuff. I guess I knew that from the beginning or kind of figured that that was the kind of instructor I was going to be. I know it's not every, every instructor for sure. It's the kind of instructor I was going to be, so I, I guess I would hope that they would say I, I really did care about them developing as whole people in all areas of their lives. Um, 
but especially in their academic area. My best advice uh, would be to, to just kind of share from my experience the things that worked for me, um, which was, you know, f find out as much as you can about the students that you're trying to teach. Uh, know your material really, really well. You, you can't be trying to learn it at the same time that you're trying to teach it. That was never successful for me. So know it really, really well. Find out who the students are really well. And then, and then just be ready to work at it, particularly hard, because it is going to be really challenging to get the students engaged in it. And that advice, of course, you want to realize comes from the, from the area that I taught in all those years. Because as a psychologist, um, teaching mostly students who, like myself, are thinking to just go into a human services uh, occupation in some way, right? The, the stuff that I taught was the stuff they didn't really understand had any applicability to what they were trying to do, at least not when they came in. So they weren't, they weren't really thinking that um, the statistics and all the behavioral stuff and the scientific stuff was going to be that useful to them. So I, it was always an uphill climb for me to draw them in, to get them engaged in it, to help them to see the usefulness of the material so that they would want to learn it. That was, that was always a challenge. That was always a challenge in my area. So that's the advice I have to give then, is that you have to just work at it really hard to find out, to learn new ways to do it, um, to do that, to catch that engagement, especially with today's students. My advice to students would be don't be too impatient with yourself. Don't be too much in a hurry. As I look at the, the today's students as a whole, as a whole group, right, the primary way that they're so different from the students I te started out teaching long ago is that they seem to think they should have already decided um, who they're going to be and what they're going to be doing for the rest of their life when they come in, when they come walking in. And I, I will confess I have already to have done that myself when I was an undergrad, but I was wrong. I was wrong about where I thought I would end up and so I had to discover, as I went along, that, you know, your pathway unfolds in front of you. It's not already laid out there exactly where it's going to be so that all you have to do is walk it, right? It unfolds as you go along because you have to discover the terrain as you're progressing so that you can decide whether it's still the right direction for you to go. And there's going to be lots of things that are going to come along that will, that will try to influence you one way or the other. And so if you come in with too fixed of an idea at the beginning, 
of exactly where you're going to end up at the end, oh, you're, you're going to have a terrible struggle and you're never going to enjoy it. And the journey is the fun part, right? So be more patient. Um, give yourself a chance to try things out. Um, be a more discovery-oriented learner, I guess, from the, from the very beginning, because only as you try things out and see what works and see what feels right for you, are you, are you going to find what that best path is? And it's a path that's made. It's not a path that's found. Okay, It's a path that you make as you go along. That's definitely what I did as I went along. And I had to just learn things about myself and about what I could and couldn't do and what I enjoyed and did not enjoy before I figured out what that path should be. When I think about Bethel as an institution and the and the directions that we should be trying to grow right now. Oh, this is what I have been concentrating on for the last year and a half, while I've been, especially for the Division of Natural and Behavioral Sciences that I've been trying to sort of lead. Um, I, I really do think that there are new directions that we need to look at moving, but I'm, I'm just a deeply invested person in who Bethel has been all along, right? And so I think we have to find, find new directions of growth. This is what the data are saying, you know, for, for all of us smaller private colleges and universities. We do need to find the directions of growth that society and young people are looking for, that the, the areas that they want. At the same time, if we let our, our liberal arts heritage get lost, we, we will lose something that's just so valuable. So we have to do both. We have to, we have to look for the new directions in which to move, but as we move in those directions, we've got to bring our heritage along with us. It won't be the thing that, that today's society and the young people and their parents are going to think that they want when they're looking at colleges, right? It's not the thing that, they're, that they think they're going to want, but we have to keep it with us anyway, and we have to find the right ways to sell it, I suppose, is the best term I can think of. Um, I don't like that term. I don't think that education is some kind of a product that and we should that we should ever be thinking of our our programs and our our mission as as product you know that we're trying to produce um, education is a transformation and the students who come here should not be expecting to leave with something in hand so much as they are, are expecting to leave a different person well the young people coming in don't won't know that and we need to find the right way to 
teach them that. And, and the right ways to draw them in that will help them to see uh, that that's what's really going to be the most profitable thing to them for the rest of their life, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm.